the age-old question, it's kind of what I want to talk about today, is the glass half full or half empty? Ashley Sowards and I were trying to make it half and half. I think it's a little more empty than it is full. Uh, but you answer this question, you know, in one of two ways. You say, well, it's half full, and then you're declared an optimist. Or you say it's half empty, and then you call yourself a realist, but everybody around you know that you're actually a pessimist, right? Um, seems like nobody wants to be a pessimist anymore. A- and life sometimes goes in a way, in a direction... It uh, that kind of sucks us dry, and, and sometimes life isn't even half full. It just feels like we're empty, and in those moments, it's really difficult to have a good attitude. And sometimes it's the little things in life that just get to us, and it bothers us. I mean, my pants were clean this morning when I got out of bed, uh, and when I put them on, even, and then. Uh, we went out to get the trailer, and it was rainy and disgusting and messy, and uh, and now my pants are dirty, and my hair doesn't look good anymore. It was a good one today, and uh, and and it's easy just with little things. You know this, right? Like when you wake up on a Sunday, for those of us who set up, and you look outside, and you're like, oh, it's raining, and this is going to be terrible because we still have to bring stuff into the gym. It's easy to have a really bad attitude when things are not going well, when the glass isn't even half full. Uh, uh, in college, I don't like to admit this, I don't like to think about this, but uh, my baseball team went on like a 15-game losing streak, and I don't know if you've ever been part of a 15-game losing streak in anything. I don't know if you've ever had 15 consecutive times of doing something poorly, uh, but it is bad, and, and it's, it's really bad when you have teammates because they're horrible human beings after about game 12. Like, you don't like anything about them. You don't like the way that they smell. You don't like the way they look. You don't like the way that they play baseball. There's just, like, this tension that's created, and it's like, don't look at my girlfriend like that, you know? And, I mean, you just, you start to butt heads. And I'm telling you, like, some of these people are still good friends of mine, but after, like, game 12 or 13, because the glass obviously wasn't half full for our baseball team at that point, it's like, I don't like you anymore. And you can just see attitudes deteriorating, you quickly learned which people were, were too optimistic and which people were realists. Um, and, and sometimes in life, with, with even the small things, uh, it's difficult to have a good attitude. And you know, when life gets really bad, I mean, you can think of a stressful or difficult or any negative type of thing that life can kind of throw at us. It's not always just bad. Sometimes it's too busy or, you know, there's too much going on or the kids are too loud or whatever. Then then it's really difficult to continue to have a good attitude. We say things like this, I'm at the end of my rope. You ever said that before? I'm at the end of my rope. I'm just, I'm about to blow. I'm, I'm, I don't know where that expression comes from, but something bad is going to happen soon because I am sick and tired of this, fill in the blank. Or, or this, this is the last straw. You normally say that to other people, but it's like when you're fed up with something and you're like, I'm trying to you know, maintain some semblance of niceness or mercy or whatever, but I, this is the last straw. I mean, one more time and fill in the blank. I don't know what you're going to do. It's usually an empty threat, but, uh, but anyway, I, you know, it's the last straw, and, I, and I'll buy some more if I need to. That's really what happens, but let's just, I'm just going to say this. Um, sometimes life sucks, 
And my grandma won't like that term, but I hope it's okay with you. I mean, sometimes life just is horrible and life is not easy. And little things like mud on your pants or a bad hair day, they can add to it. But sometimes like you're just like, my glass is empty. Everything is going bad. There's nothing good going on. And I'm, I'm really, this is the last straw. I'm at my rope's end. I'm, I can no longer put on a happy face. I can no longer act like things are okay because this is, I just, I'm struggling. I mean, you think about the things, I mean, like sometimes with your jobs, and I know this, it was interesting actually with our rock, paper, scissors prayer. Uh, we just had a conversation last Monday about how many people in our church struggling are struggling financially and, and how we can, you know, support you and, and help you get better jobs or whatever. Um, and this week, I don't know what happened this week, but everybody put up scissors almost. Like, did you guys just go out and fight everybody last week? Or is it the invitations to church? All the relationships are just breaking down. I don't know what you did this week, uh, but apparently you made people mad or they made you mad um but sometimes like with your jobs and you work with like that one guy you know or that one girl and it's like everything here would be great but this person's here every single day and i have to deal with them and some at some point it's like really hard to have a good attitude anymore uh when your health has been bad for a really long time i said in my prayer that i'm hurting today i i was watching movies yesterday and and somehow i like pinched nerves in my neck i think and i'm having trouble moving it'll go away soon enough uh but but it's like just this little thing of like not being able to turn my head without moving my whole body. You know, if that goes on for a year or two years, I had a college baseball coach uh, who, who just had the worst back ever and the guy never slept and he stayed alive by drinking Mountain Dew so that he didn't have to sleep. Uh, and, and it went on years and years and eventually like I, this, this is now no longer something I can just have a good attitude about. I'm angry, I'm frustrated, it just keeps going. Family members can just bother you you know that like you're annoying and you're my family member and I you know I'd have picked a different one but you're still here and we're still blood related and I should do something they can just drive you nuts I mean you can just go down the list and life is not that fun sometimes life sucks sometimes it's just terrible the glass is empty and you're like this is dumb and I don't like it and you just this is what you want to do you want to have a bad attitude you just want to wake up and make everybody else feel what you're feeling and, and just like, look, if I'm annoyed, you're annoyed too and I'm going to yell at you and I'm going to blow off some steam. We say it like that to make ourselves feel better because it's, you know, everybody's blowing off some steam uh, and you just get frustrated. But here's kind of the other thing that we know. Nobody likes a person with a bad attitude. Like, because the guy at work, the reason that you're so frustrated with them is because they have a bad attitude, Right? Nobody, I mean, you've been around people like this, like, like you're doing work outside. I don't know what you're doing, but you're doing work outside. Maybe you're fixing a fence um, because I need to fix a fence. Uh, and maybe you're fixing a fence and, and you're like, okay, this isn't very fun. It's raining. It's not a great day for this. I'm a little bit hungry, but it's okay. And then some other person that's helping you, it's very nice of them to be helping you. I wouldn't complain about their attitude too much, but they're just like, oh, I can't believe it's raining. I can't believe that we haven't had lunch yet. I can't believe that we're here. I can't believe that the fence fell down. I can't. Uh. Right. And then all of a sudden, you're like, 
you are making this worse. I wish you weren't here. I could hammer those boards in myself. I mean, this is, this is like you're making it worse. And we've all been around people. We may be this person, but we don't recognize in ourselves. But we've all been around people who have negative attitudes and we know that it makes everything worse. Nobody likes a person that is constantly in a bad mood, that is constantly pointing to the fact that the glass is half empty, right? You're like, I, I mean, we, we were like, I can see it's half empty, but you don't need to tell me every five seconds that it's half empty and you don't need to act like your life is over because the glass is half empty. And we've been around these people and we know, I mean, just if we're going, I could just ask you, I mean, like, if you say, vote for which one of these is good, good attitude or bad attitude, ready? Okay, who says bad attitude is a good thing to have? Okay, who says a good attitude is a good thing to have? See, we all agree on that. It's a pretty simple fact of life. It's like, not something we need to look at the Bible for. We just get that. And here's what the Bible is going to tell us today. This is so good. James in the Bible is going to say to us, one of the things that can make us different as Christians is that we can have a good attitude no matter how bad life has become. This is going to be so good. Because we, don't, I mean, I think Christians have a big time reputation right now of having a bad attitude about everything. People look at us and they go, I know exactly what they're against, but I'm not sure they like anything. You know, I mean, I could tell you everything that bothers them all the time, but I'm not sure that, that they like anything. And I, I mean, I, I just, our church is awesome, and I'll say that without saying more, but I've been around some people this week that have you know, kind of the ear to other churches. And, and man, like our church is great in large part because the attitude is so good when people show up and people are excited and when we're putting stuff in in the rain, it's fun and, and all that. But there's just like so many churches out there where, where you go and you're like, these people hate everything. I mean, like these people don't like me because I'm here almost. And I took their chair and they're mad about that. And uh, they're upset about every type of change in the world. And they're talking about how, you know, uh, computers are going to eventually lead to the Antichrist and, and everything's going to go to hell quite literally. And, um, and, and like these people just like smile, you know. And if, I, I don't know if you've ever visited a church where like nobody's smiling, but you're like, something is wrong here. And it's not that abnormal. Like you people, like, like uh, think good attitude, good, bad attitude, bad. We voted, you know, I mean, like something needs to change. And James is going to say to us, what we feel in those moments is right. Christians should have a good attitude and it should be in some ways a defining attitude for Christians. Because we have something that other people don't have. Now, the book of James, we haven't talked about this much, but we just, we just kind of need to, to get this out there. The book of James is written to churches. Um, it, it may be written to a single church that's kind of the hub for a bunch of churches. But in this area that James is writing to, uh, it's really full, and we've mentioned this, it's full of poor people. Uh, and it's indentured slavery in some ways. The people have become so indebted to the landowners. Um, they've sold their land to them and then borrowed against their own land. They've become so indebted that they're in some ways just like slaves to them. And, and they, they don't have a choice to like go down the road and get a new job when they don't like their job. Uh, they just simply have to keep working for these people who now own their land in order to keep farming the land that they've really 
they've mortgaged it away so that they can stay alive, so that they can keep eating, so that they can have the sustenance that they need for everything to kind of be okay. And so this is like a really bad situation in life, right? I mean, you think like you don't like somebody you work with or they're not paying you enough. I mean, this is like, man, things have become so bad through famine and things like that that now I've really given away the farm. It's pretty literal in this sense. That's not even uh, an analogy. I've given away the farm and now I have like no say over my life. I'll work for this guy as much as he tells me to work because there's nowhere else to go. I owe him my life and he's taking it from me and he's not treating me very well. And this other part of what's happened in James is that there has become this giant separation, probably more than the average American can envision, between the people who have money, who have now bought in the land and taken the land and who are making these other people farm for them, and the people who are struggling, who have sold their land, who don't have any land, who are working every day to stay alive. And even there's oppression now that's taking place between the rich and the poor, and they're not treating them well, and they're looking down on them. And even in the church, there may be some of this going on where you're not one of me. Look, I smell good. I look good. You know, I don't have mud on my pants. And I mean, like there's some, there's some oppression happening. And, and, and so this is the, the people that James is writing to, people who may say, like, this is the last straw. I'm at my wit's end or rope's end. I mean, the glass is obviously not full at all. Everything is pretty bad. And here's what James says. James 5, 7, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Great advice, James. You be patient, buddy. Uh, like, nobody likes to hear be patient, right? I mean, whenever somebody tells me to be patient, I just become really impatient. One time I was getting an MRI, and they told me that they wanted to do my, I don't know, neck and brain or something at the same time. Uh, so it was kind of two MRIs in one. And I remember, I always, when I get MRIs, and I have multiple sclerosis, that's more than one sclerosis, uh, for those of you that don't know what it is, uh, on my spine and my brain, uh, and, uh, yeah, oh, sad, uh, but it, it doesn't really affect me in any way, because that's your next question, I know, uh, but, so it was like two in one, and I'm pretty used to MRIs, and usually when I get an MRI, I, I say to the person, like, hey, can you tell me how long each section's going to be, and if you've never had one, it sounds like Almost exactly. Uh, that was just like getting an MRI right there. And it's right by your head. And you're in there and you're claustrophobic. And they ask if you have the drugs, if you want the drugs. And I usually say no because I don't like to take things unless I have to. And anyway, and so you're in there. And I like to know how long each section is going to be. And they usually say like three minutes. And so I'll, I'll sing a song. And then I'll count down for how much extra I think there's going to be. And then it's over. And we go on to the next one. It's like this time passing deal. And this one time, this guy was lying to me. I swear to you, he was lying to me. Like, he, he, was, he was saying, like, oh, it'll be three minutes. And I would sing, like, the national anthem 12 times before it was over. And, and, and this guy putting the pressure on me uh, and making it seem like this is what was happening. He made it seem like my feelings didn't really matter being in this little death trap. I mean, that's kind of how he was acting. A little bit of an attitude when I left and I was frustrated. He said, oh, we almost had a guy go two hours once. And I looked at the clock. I'd been in there for an hour and 50 minutes. So I don't know how much closer that you could get. And, and he had this attitude like, it doesn't really matter that you're in there in the radiation machine uh, while I'm behind these closed walls. Just deal with it. 
And that's kind of how it feels when James says, be patient at the beginning of this. Just a little, right? Like, do you, do you really care what I am going through? You're telling me just to be patient. But I'm struggling and I'm hurting and I want to blow up and be mad and be frustrated and be upset. The word be patient is important. It's said over and over and over again in this passage. You'll notice that. Uh, and it's a Greek word, as most of the New Testament is. It's macro through meo is how you would say it. And it's used four times in five verses to be exact here. And that's important because when the Bible says something over and over and over again, you should pay attention. Uh, there's also another word in the passage. I don't know if you care about this, but it's a close synonym. And so James is really, really saying, like, be patient. The word is a compound word. That's where you take two words and shove them together, if you don't remember from your grade school classes. Uh, and one word, macro, equals long, means long. And the other word, through mayo, means anger. And so the idea is to be long before your anger sets in. It's to be long-minded, that is to say slow to anger, uh, or slow to be passionate about something. So James is saying, you're dealing with a bunch of stuff. Life is hard. I want you to be slow to get angry. I want you to be slow to get frustrated. I want you to be slow to let the bad attitude set in. This is something that's said often about God, thankfully. In Psalm 145, 8, it says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and rich in love. It's said throughout the Bible. And James is saying, look, God is this way and you ought to be this way too. One author said this of the word. It's really important and we just kind of have an idea about this word. Be long-suffering or let not your patience be exhausted. Your courage, rigor, and forbearance is not to be short-lived, but is to be enduring. Let it continue as long as there is need of it, even to the coming of the Lord. Then you will be released from your sufferings. Now, then he mentions the Lord's coming. And the Lord's coming is mentioned actually three times in this passage of Scripture. And it can refer to our death, as uh, some of us will meet the Lord that way. Uh, but it also, and more, points to the time when Jesus will return. Quick rundown of what Christians believe. Christians believe that Jesus came to earth as a baby. We celebrate Christmas. And then he lived a sinless life. And then he died for our sins. It was the punishment for our transgressions. And then he rose again on a day that we celebrate as Easter. Invite someone to celebrate that with us. And then after about 40 days, hanging out, uh, showing people that he was alive, teaching them the last few things he needed to teach them. He went up to heaven, but he said like, hey, I'm coming back someday. And someday Jesus will return and it will be powerful and big and you'll see it and then he'll say you go to heaven you go to hell and we'll have a conversation about all the things that we did that's what we believe as christians and so james says look be patient you go okay how long until the lord's coming a little bit frustrating again because like we're i don't know what you consider a short amount of time, but we're at, you know, 2,000 years since Jesus left, uh, give or take a handful of years, and you might go, well, wow, 2,000 years is a really long time to be patient. I would like a little less time, 30 seconds in our society today is just a little bit too long to be patient, you know? I mean, we want, and this is, this is like the least American thing that James could have said. It's very hard for us because we have like 
defined lack of patience, impatience. We have, we have taken attention span and shrunken them down into like something that's not even a thing that exists. We don't have one. We just, we just go from one thing to another. We watch movies and look at our phone and maybe our iPads at the same time, you know, because we're not entertained enough or whatever. And James says, hey, be patient. Jesus is coming back. And it's hard for us. But it's got to be important for us at the same time. Just because we go in our heads, uh, and we might be the first generation, uh, my generation, to kind of act like maybe, you know, I mean, I don't really think Jesus is going to come soon. But the Bible, and we'll see this in a second, is just ripe with statements to say you need to remember that Jesus is coming soon, even if it's not soon in your mind, Uh, a mind that is driven by being entertained and having quick fixes about everything. Jesus is coming soon, as he says in a couple of verses. Ah, look, for the Christian, this is really important. For the Christian, what this means is that eventually things will be set right. If you're not a Christian, you should be scared. You should give your life to Jesus because Jesus is coming back. But for the Christian whom James is speaking to first and foremost, he's saying, hey, hey, know this. Life is bad now, but God will come and he will set everything right. What he's saying is be patient. God is coming. He continues, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. The idea seems to be that we should wait for things to develop themselves in their proper season and should not be impatient before the season arrives. I mean, the idea here that James is getting at is that we can't do anything to speed up the rain. We can't. We just wait for it to come. And here's, here's what happens. And, and let's magnify it. I mean, your little thing, you ultimately, you want something to happen. You want something to change. And that's why you blow up. That's why you get angry. That's why you get frustrated, right? But James is saying here, on a small scale or a big scale, my life is terrible. Everything is bad. I really need help. And I'm, I, I mean, I need something to change. On a long or big scale, Blowing up, getting angry, having a bad attitude isn't going to change anything. I spent two months as a summer missionary in Idaho. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago, or maybe that was last week. And one of the things that just blew me away all the time, I was just like, this can't be real, is that every time we had a church gathering, almost every time, when we did prayer requests, people would say, I need to pray for rain. They are, they are, this area that I was in is one of the biggest non-irrigated uh, farm areas in the United States of America. But for an Oregonian boy, it was like, I can't join you in that prayer. I love you people. I think you're nice. But I don't pray for rain. We pray for sun. Uh, and I told him this. I made this clear. I don't think I, I may have said one time begrudgingly, God, I guess please maybe help these people get their rain, even though that's a weird thing to pray. Uh, but it was weird for me. But these people... In these two months, I really did love those people. They knew something that James is trying to teach us. We are totally reliant on rain, and the only thing we can do to make the rain come is ask God to bring the rain. You see, these people couldn't go outside 
do an, a rain dance. They couldn't go outside and wave their hands super hard. They couldn't make the rain come by being frustrated that the rain hadn't come. Oh, I'm so angry that it hasn't rained yet. Ah, you know, like that doesn't do any good. I mean, these people couldn't make rain come. It just came when God provided it. And it usually, thankfully, comes at the proper season, the proper time. And James is using this very rural farmer metaphor that the people would have understood to say, look, there is absolutely nothing accomplished by you being quick to anger, by you being upset all the time, by you having a bad attitude. God is going to, this is ultimately his point, bring his deliverance when he brings his deliverance. Now he's already said that that can come from Jesus returning and setting everything right for Christians, but it also can come in other ways. God will provide the money that you need. God will provide a new job for you. God will provide healing in a relationship, the very things we've prayed for today. God will provide healing to your body or the doctors will get things fixed or he'll give you the medicine that you need or whatever it might be. But sitting around, having a bad attitude is not going to bring the deliverance any faster. This might be the most obvious but helpful point that James could make. It's something we talk about, right? We're building a fence. It's raining. We have Mr. Guy over here going, this is, I can't believe it's raining. I can't believe that. not making the rain stop. He's just making things worse by his grumbling. It almost doesn't feel like a spiritual statement. James is just saying you are not speeding anything up by coming to your last straw, by being upset all the time, by having a negative attitude. He continues, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So he repeats the command to stand, uh, to be patient and then he adds to stand firm uh, also two Greek words put together, and it simply means to establish or to set fast or fix firmly your heart. This is a big deal. In the middle of hurt, pain, suffering, when life is difficult and bad and terrible stuff is going on, it's easy to let our hearts drift away from God and from the very things that we have believed and held to. I know a lot of people, I've encountered a lot of people that have said, I, I don't really believe in God anymore. I'm, I kind of gave that stuff up. And when you, you start taking steps back with these people, okay, what led to that? I mean, and what led to that? And what led to that? Usually, it goes all the way back to something bad happened. Something bad took place. And I wasn't patient. I was quick to get angry. And my heart was not firm. And now I'm way far away from wherever I ever thought I was going to be. 
I mean, you can even read, there's a book out there right now, a guy that, that's trying to discredit Christianity that's actually uh, recommended in Christian books because it's so poorly written, um, which I think is funny. But uh, if a Christian book recommends a book trying to discredit Christianity, then you know it couldn't have been very well done. But the guy says, he starts at the onset, he's like, look, this is what happened. I was hurt by a church. It, it hurt me. And now here's what I believe because of it. You look and you say, well, this isn't a belief that changed. This was a heart that was not patient in the midst of suffering. This was a heart that was not set fast in what it believed and what it longed for and what it was trying to accomplish. This was a heart that was moving around. James has already said that. If we are like, uh, if we are like uh, something tossed about by the waves of the sea, then we are double-minded. And James comes back to it here and says, look. Instead of just blowing up, say, here's what I'm going to do in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of all this stuff that is hard to deal with. I'm going to lock in and say, God, I will serve you no matter what takes place. You can't speed up deliverance by being upset, but you can make sure that you continue to live right by locking in and saying, God, no matter what happens, blessed be your name, no matter what happens, I'm going to continue to live and serve you, live for you and serve you. You see, here's just something that I've noticed. As we talk about being different in our world today, I think one of the great things that can stand out, and we don't like this because we like quick fixes, but I think that one of the great things that can stand out for us if the portrait of our life is going to be different is that we can stand firm. You see, in our world today, it seems that nothing is firm. Uh, one of my favorite speeches of all time, right up there with, uh, with the end of Independence Day, uh, is, is a real speech. Well, I guess that's a real speech, but on a movie. Uh, a real speech given, and it was the speech given by George Bush Jr. after uh, September 11th happened. And it's not a political statement. The speech is beautiful, no matter what side of the fence you fall on. And this is what he said. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat, but they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundation of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. I love that, and I want to stand up and salute the flag and get excited. But as I look around, it's not true. I mean, the American resolve seems to be dying. The foundations that America has forever been standing on seem to be crumbling. And so while I look at George Bush's speech and say, man, that's powerful and awesome, I think its only true application is to the Christian. You see, we're in a unique position as Christians to say no matter what happens around us, even if American resolve goes away, even if everything that this great country has stood on for hundreds of years dissolves, then I will be immovable because of my relationship to God. I will stand here patiently serving the one I have always patiently served no matter how bad things get in our country, in my family, in my life. We look around and, and, and I think... You may not, if you're in the older generations, and I, I kind of split a generation, but there's a new generation even now, they call them Generation Z. I mean, you look at the generations my age and younger, and, and, and you go, 
you know, are things going to get better or worse in the future? They'll, they'll say to you, they will get worse. You say, do you feel stable just in your life and what this country brings to you and, and what's happening? They'll say, no, I don't feel stable at all. That They say that people in the younger generations, they like to look backward. They like to be connected to tradition because they look forward and they say things aren't going to get any better. You see, we don't have anything to stand on unless we're standing on the things of God. And James is saying, look, your buildings can fall. Your economy can crash. Your jobs can go away. You can distrust your government. Life can be difficult, but you have something different as Christians, and that is that you can be slow to get angry and fast to lock in and say, I will serve God and be obedient to him and live out my morality and do what I've been called to do no matter what takes place around me. He says it's because the Lord's coming is near. Isn't that the reality? I mean, when you, when you think about it, either Jesus is going to come back in your lifetime or you're going to die, but you're not going to be alive for that long. I mean, you can prolong it. You can work really hard. You can exercise. You can eat healthy. You can, you can do whatever you need to do, and you might give yourself, what, an extra 10 years if you don't get hit by a car tomorrow? You are a flower quickly fading. And so either way, this is good news for you as a Christian. This is good. It's not, that wasn't bad news. Don't look at it as the half, glass is half full, empty. Uh, the good news is that Jesus is going to meet you soon. Your redemption, even if it's through death or the return of Jesus and not in some other way, is not going to take that long. It's going to come quickly. And so no matter what you face, you can continue to say, yeah, I'm going to have a good attitude about this. I'm going to be slow to get angry and I'm going to lock in and set my heart on the things that God wants me to set my heart on. James is saying, be patient because God is coming. I mean, be patient because God is coming, he said it, and then be patient because it doesn't do anything not to be patient, and then be patient again because God is coming and he's coming soon. And he continues, gets a little more specific. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. Or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. The third command of the passage is don't grumble. And if you know and have experienced a long period of difficulty, then you know how difficult grumbling can be not to do. I mentioned the 15-game losing streak. Really hard not to grumble about everything. Everything was wrong and you know, everything was bad and all the time. If you've had financial hardship for a long time, you know how difficult it is not to complain every time your spouse buys something or whatever. Uh, if you've been in physical pain a long time, then it's really difficult not to just make your physical pain the, the topic of every conversation. Oh, I just hurt him today and this is terrible and I don't like this and it still hurts and it just becomes a part of who you are. And, and James says don't grumble against one another and it's probably because there's something specific going on in the church and they're starting to whine and complain and say this is your fault if the rich people were doing their job and if you were helping here and, and they're starting to blame each other but James is like don't grumble because if you do you'll be judged. This is, this is like, whoa, flip of the switch, James. Where'd you get so negative? Don't be a pessimist. I mean, he's saying, look, here's what you need to hear. Like, Jesus is coming. That's good. It's good for you if you're a Christian. If you're not, you got another problem. But, but if you're a Christian, then it's good that Jesus is coming and you'll meet with him soon and your deliverance will be there. But also remember this. When you grumble against someone, you are judging them. 
And when you judge somebody, you heighten the judgment that God will have upon you when you meet him face to face. Now, I don't want to go into this because there's two ways that you're going to see this, and, and I can't, I, it's not the point of my sermon. You're either going to go, exactly, don't judge me, you know, don't tell me I'm doing something wrong, and that's, you know, that's not totally true. Or you're going to be like, what, God's going to judge me if I judge people, and does that mean I go to hell? And the answer to that is no, uh, it doesn't mean you go to hell. But I just did a whole sermon series on this, and I'm not going to jump into it, but you need, you need to listen to it. CreeksideBibleChurch.org forward slash planks dash specs. CreeksideBibleChurch.org forward slash planks dash specs. You need to listen to it. It's one of the most important sermon series I've ever done for what our culture thinks like and what they say about Christians and how the Christian culture is being shaped today. Uh, But I'm not going to go deeper into it today. Instead, I'm just going to point to this. Be patient because God is the judge. And you're going to stand before him and you have a command not to be a person who's complaining all the time to be patient. And remember this, that God is the judge. He continues, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So he points to an example. Do you want to know what it's like to be patient? Look at the prophets. Now, if you don't know who the prophets are, they're guys in the Old Testament, and they came into a town or to a place or to a people, and they said, here's God's perspective on things. Sometimes they told the future, but a lot of other times they just said, look, you're not doing what God has said to do. You need to do it. God doesn't think this is right, and if you continue in these ways, then he's going to punish you and be upset. And the prophets would come, and they would talk, And then a lot of times what would happen is that they would be persecuted horribly and then they would continue to be obedient and speak in the name of the Lord, doing what was right for the people and not right for themselves. Jeremiah is a great example of this. If you want to read a story that's just fascinating and interesting and depressing and uh, and makes you have questions, then go read the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. But this is a really long story short. Uh, Jeremiah comes in, tells God's perspective on things. He's put in stocks. It means like your feet are fastened, very uncomfortable. He was lowered into a dungeon. He lost his freedom, being forced to live with different people. And yet Jeremiah, in the midst of all of it, persisted without bitterness or anger towards other people. I mean, this is worse than what you face, right? I mean, you haven't been locked up recently. You haven't been thrown in prison. You haven't, you haven't been told where to live. You haven't lost your personal freedoms. You haven't had a bunch of people make fun of you when you're trying to do something good for them. Jeremiah did, and yet in the midst of it, he did not complain to other people. The Greek word for preserved, persevered, meant, means to remain under the approach or presence of any person or thing. That is to say, to await the onset then of person and conflict. It just means to hold your ground, to keep going, to keep living for Jesus. This is what the prophets did. Now he also uses the example of Job. And if you don't know the story of Job, another great book to read in the Bible. 
if you want to be confused. Man, the first time I read the book of Job, I was on the wrong guy's team the whole time. I won't say more than that because it would give it away. I don't want to give it away any. But the whole time I was agreeing with the guy, and, and then you get with a certain group of people, and then you get to the end, and it's like this bait and twitch, it, it switch. It's like the sixth sense on you. It's like, like, what just happened? Like, I was on the wrong team the whole time. Very humbling. Go read it. Very fascinating. But Job, if you don't know his story, rich, great family, great life, godly individual, God allows for Satan to attack him. Job loses absolutely everything. And then this is what we read from Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Now you go, wait, Job did complain, and Job did, that's true. But he complained to God, and he wanted an answer from God. He wasn't just sitting around grumbling all the time. His wife was a little bit like that. But he wasn't just sitting around going, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. He was doing something about the problem in his life. He was saying, God, I need to have a conversation with you. I need to talk to you because I don't think this is right. There's a pretty big difference there. Now, here's the key. Here's the trick of it all. Ready? We see that this, you see what the Lord finally brought about in Job's life. And and it's really easy to read that. And and if you read the story, Job gets richer at the end and he has more children at the end. And it's really easy to read that little line right there in James and go, oh, he made everything better. Everything got awesome in the end. But Job still had 10 kids die. So everything wasn't made better. I think Job still would have gone back, financially speaking, and all that, and say, I'd like to just, let's hit the restart button here. And James isn't saying that if you persevere, everything's going to be great for you. No, no, no. What happened for Job is that he gained a greater understanding of God. You see, in the end, Job had something better but not some physical blessing. Job was in a better place spiritually because he had met with God. I'm giving away too much of that story, but he met with God and he understood more about God. And you see, James says here that the prophets, we count them as blessed. Now this is a big deal because it doesn't say, I want you to notice two things. It doesn't say that they thought they were blessed. It doesn't say that we will be blessed if we persevere. It says, when we look back on the prophets of old who endured persecution and continued to live for God and didn't walk around complaining to everybody about the situation they were in, we call them blessed. That word, makarios, I've said it a lot, and I'm sorry for all the Greek words today. It just felt appropriate. Uh, it's a word that, that means satisfaction. Uh, and satisfaction that is not based on our external circumstances. It is a word that comes up a lot in the Bible, and we talk about it in a lot of sermons. It's a word that was used in the Greek culture for happiness of the gods because they could have as many brownies as they ever wanted and, and, as, and, and the ability to eat brownies endlessly both. See, like where we as human beings, we could have all the brownies in the world, but we could only eat a couple. But the Greek gods, they could, and they didn't use brownies. I don't think they were invented, but somebody should look that up. Um, The Greek gods could just have as much as they wanted with the endless ability to use the resources in their lives. And this is the word that the Bible takes throughout and and says, look, this is what Christians can have, and this is what Christians can look forward to, and this is is what we are now. And James here says, look, when you look back on their lives, this is really key, and, and you look at the prophets, And you say, okay, how did it end for him? What was it like? You say, blessed. 
There's something great about them. And you say, now they're in heaven and they have satisfaction that we can't ever understand. But we don't look back. Nobody, I mean, if you're a Bible person at all, you don't look back and say, I mean, everybody in the Old Testament had some type of hardship. You don't go, man, I'm glad I'm not them. Don't we say things like, I wish I could be more like? Don't we look at Joseph in Genesis 50, a great story in dealing with suffering and hurting and pain and, and not complaining? And don't we go, I just wish I could be more like Joseph because he seemed to live a pretty satisfying life. And in the end, I mean, I'm still reading about him thousands of years after he lived and he saved people and God used him. That's pretty incredible. We don't look at Moses and go, man, Moses. I don't want to be anything like that guy. I mean, people were bothering him and complaining to him, and he was just so busy all the time. We go, no, look, I mean, this is like a guy I want to be like. I wish I could have that type of faith. I wish I could have that type of ministry. I wish I could accomplish something so great. Jeremiah, Isaiah, I mean, you go down the list, and when we look back on their lives, these lives that were not full of complaining but full of faith, we say, wow, those people were blessed by God. And what James is saying, I think, I think a big part of that statement is this. You may not be able to see what God is doing while you're in the midst of a life that seems sucked dry, but you can know in the end that if you're not a complainer and you stand firm, then when people look back on your life, they're gonna go, wow, that person was blessed. Even when you come out of the trial and it's over and you look back, you'll go, wow, it's incredible what God accomplished through that been true every time in my life once the wind and the rain of life goes away and everything comes back to normal I go God I can't believe how many great things you did through that not that you caused it not that you brought it not that it's your fault but you just did an amazing work through it. it's Romans 8 28 a pretty famous verse says and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose And then he reminds us, James, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, simply saying, God deeply, desperately cares about what you are facing, and he wants to help you. He will help you in the right time and the right way, even if it isn't how you think you ought to be helped. James says, be patient because God blesses. Man, here's... The thing, I mean, ultimately, it's going to be okay if you're a Christian. This is why we can be patient. This is why we cannot be complainers. This is why we can have a different attitude than the rest of the world because ultimately, everything is going to be okay. And the first thing, I mean, if you're not a Christian, I just, I don't know what you have to look forward to. I mean, just from my heart to your ears, I don't know what you have to look forward to. This life is always going to be terrible until the very end when it gets really terrible because you're old and you're sick and a lot of your loved ones have died and you probably feel a sense of loneliness and maybe a sense of guilt for the things that you haven't accomplished. (laughs) And the reality is you could have a good attitude in anything if you become a Christian. And so please become a Christian because of what James is saying here to us who are Christians. We have an infinite amount of goodness to look forward to 
And these trials are just short-term little things in the midst of an eternity that is going to be full of love and grace and perfection. That's what James is saying. He's saying, if you're a Christian, then this ain't it. Something better awaits us. Something perfect awaits us. Something incredible awaits us. I thought about the 23rd Psalm as I was preparing my sermon. And in the 23rd Psalm, if you don't know it, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's this Psalm where David is saying like, in the midst of life's difficulties, I can still see the hand of God. I can still see God moving and God blessing and leading and taking care of me. It in a nutshell. It's way more beautiful than I just made it, but that's what it is in a nutshell. And then he says this thing at the very end. It's the part that I kind of skip over. We really like the beginning parts, you know, where we're walking by the still waters and we're laying down in the grass. But he says something pretty profound. He says, in the midst of my enemies... You prepare a table for me, and my cup overfloweth to be very King James-ish. Isn't that interesting? He says, when it looks like on a worldly level, I mean, I'm surrounded by enemies, that's bad. David had a lot worse days than you have. Like, he wasn't just saying, like, you know, that enemy of, like, uh, I'm sad today. He's talking about, like, enemies. Like, when people are, are surrounding me because they want to kill me, my cup overfloweth and it's like James says when life appears to be half full or half empty God has already just filled our cup up so full that it doesn't matter I mean what what David says to us and what James is trying to get across is when life seems sucked dry if you're a Christian then your life is full because of the hope you have in the future and because of the relationship that you have with God a hope that says, I am going to look back on this and say I'm blessed because God will do something good. A hope of deliverance and a hope of glory in heaven. The reason that we can have a good attitude no matter what circumstances we face is that we know that our lives are filled up even when the glass is half empty. I want this to be real. I just want to just get right down to it. We've taught it and just, we should be known wherever we go. This is, this is at the heart of it. If we're going to be different, if we're truly going to be different. And I've, I've said, I mean, like, you know, sometimes it's hard. I'm a Christian, you know, I live in the world. What's the difference? What am I going to look like? How are people going to know I'm a Christian? You should have a way better attitude than everybody else. There is no, in Christian circles, there is no, well, I'm just a pessimist. You might just be a pessimist. I don't care. But you're totally filled by God. I mean, you, you have more blessing if you believe what the Bible says. You have more blessing than you could have ever possibly expected or wanted or thought about in Jesus because you have a hope of a future and you have love and you have grace and you have mercy. We should, I mean, people should. And I've known, I've known, good, solid, it seems like the better a Christian, the less they complain to me. Just, a, just something I've kind of seen in my life. The more they love Jesus, the more they're connected to Jesus, the more they long for, for heaven someday, the more they look forward to meeting Jesus, the less they sit around going, oh, woe is me. 
And what James is saying is that your glass is overflowing, your cup is overflowing. And so therefore you should be different in your attitude. You should be you should be known because you are the guy or the girl that has a way better attitude than everybody else that's around. That is what James is calling us to. Will you will you pray with me, Lord? When life is bad, God, it's really difficult. Not to just complain, not to make everything a big deal, not to whine, not to get mad at everybody, Lord. It's hard. I'm not saying it's not hard, God. You know it's hard. You lived here. But Lord, I pray that right now you do a work in us. And I thank God, and I'm so excited for this resurrection series coming up that we're going to do on Easter and after Easter, God. I think that, that, that the things you've offered us through resurrection, all these hopes, God, they just fill us up in such crazy ways. But, but we live, we do, in, in an American culture that is very negative, and, and we have a Christian culture at this point that is often more focused on, on not sinning and all the bad stuff in the world and, and even on your death and not your resurrection, Lord, that, that sometimes we just get caught up in it and we are negative Nancys, Lord. We're just negative. And I pray for this group of people, God, that we would be different. I pray that you'd remind us and we would be seeking reminders every day of all the blessings that we have in you, that we would be in your word thinking and dwelling and pondering and reflecting on your love and your joy and your peace, God, for us and how you were slow to anger and rich in love, Lord. And I pray we would remember that we've been brought into this family uh, that, that we see lived out every week at church, God, and, and we gather together as brothers and sisters and we, we laugh together and we struggle together and we have people who will pray for us and who are praying for us. These are huge blessings that the rest of the world doesn't have, God. And I pray we'd be reminded of the fact that we have an eternity to look forward to and the promise, God, that you are working out everything for our good, something that outside of Christianity is not true for people, God. And in all of that, God, when we wake up and we stub our toes, Lord, something that makes me madder than anything else, and we look around and the glass just seems half empty, Lord, we would remember that it's not and that we are full. And God, we would rejoice and not complain. God, I pray that this would be the the best attitude church in the world. Lord, that when people come here, they'd be like, man, these people... These people seemingly are joyful. It seems like everything is good in their lives, but when they raise their hands to ask for prayer, when I look at their prayer request, everything's not, but it seems like it. And God, I pray people would go, what is that? And we'd say it's Jesus and the hope that we have in him. Lord, as human beings, there's not a ton of stuff that separates us from Christian and non-Christian. We all have the same fears and failures and struggles and many of the same hopes and dreams and we want the same things for our kids. But Lord, there ought to be a major difference in our attitude. And I pray, God, in our hearts today, you would change something. You would make us a group of people who are always excited about you. Not always excited about what's going on in life, but always facing it, God, remembering the joy we have in you. I ask these things in your name. Amen.